Hello, listeners. We are back with your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing possible. I am here with John. Hello, everybody. And we have uh, a friend of ours that we've known for a, a long, long time, who is our resident econ dude, Matt, who has various experience and knowledge about this. And like Canon Mike, we will disclose none of the real information about that to you. Um, so you will have to weigh the information for itself. What's up, Matt? Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to see you guys. So we're gathered here today to discuss the squeeze that didn't squoze or kind of squoze or what the fuck actually happened with GameStop and all of this, because of course this is one of our many untimely meditations. It will come out several weeks after (laughs) sort of the initial fallout and likely after the news cycle has moved on to some other spectacle, but uh, it seems worth dipping back into to understand what happened as a way to get better insight into what is actually going on in the world of finance, because what happens in America is basically more or less what happens in the world uh, when it comes to finance. So Matt, I'm just going to ask you a question. Um, What the fuck is a hedge fund? (laughs) Like, what does Uh, it do? A hedge fund is a bunch of money and a bunch of people. And uh, they, 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 they place bets is what they do. <laughs> and uh, the money, the money comes from investors. And the, um, and the, 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 the people are the managers of the hedge fund, and they decide how to place those bets. So hedge funds are typically called hedge funds because they hedge, meaning they are long on certain securities, and they're short on other securities. And there are certain regulatory uh, uh, things that make a hedge fund, uh, you know, different from a mutual fund or some other kind of investment bank and, and certainly much different from like a deposit bank or a commercial bank or whatnot. But, but basically for the, the, the best way to understand them is, is it, it's just, it's just some people who manage a bunch of money and they're long certain securities and short others. So they're managing a bunch of money, but they're also, we're dealing with loans and stuff, right? Like, could you talk a little bit about maybe like the relationship between a hedge fund and like some investment banks, for instance, yeah, so I mean, hedge funds borrow money from others. Hedge funds uh, lend money to others. But I mean, I think the but the the sort of the primary thing is that they receive money from you know a variety of sources. So like inst- like a lot of institutions are invested in hedge funds, mm-hmm. right? So um so if you have like a retirement account. You can go on whatever you know the website of, of whoever of whoever your uh, uh, the, the company is that that does that for you, and you'll see that you can select from a bunch of different funds. Some of them are mutual funds, and some of them are hedge funds. Mm. Um, so, investing in a hedge fund, it, in a lot of ways, it's like it's like any other investment. I mean, a lot, a lot most most kind of hedge funds aren't going to be something that you can buy on an exchange. A lot of them aren't. Yeah, it's not like a company like Apple, and it's not like an ETF that's you know tied to the whole S and P five hundred, which is a, a a highly followed you know index of of the stock market. Like they can be a little bit more boutique. Like you might yeah, turn much away more. if they don't if they don't need your money. Yeah, it. and so when we're talking long and short, what we really mean is that there are going to be some firms, some whatever 
that a hedge fund looks at and they're like, well, we want to be in this for the long haul. We think that this is going to pay out over time in a consistent way. This place will prosper. And then uh, for being short on something, they're like, well, we're going to bet that this is going to decline and we're going to expect that and put down some bets that that will happen. And so when the company declines, they receive compensation for, of course, their accurate bet that that's going to happen. And what, and just, to, just to be clear, like like when I say when I say long and short, I don't necessarily mean that the that these bets have a any particular like time maturity. No, no, no. Uh, that's just the terminology, right? Like, yeah. yeah if, if you're long something, you're betting it'll go up. If you're yep, short something, short something you're betting it's going to go down. And so that's basically what happens with GameStop. Um, Melvin Capital is a hedge fund that announced, I think a couple of years ago that it was maybe one year ago was expecting GameStop to decline. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, even before coronavirus, the world was hard on brick and mortar retailers. GameStop. Yeah. Most, most of these reasons make sense. <laughs> yes. Most of these reasons make sense, right? Uh, Steam has proved to be a big problem for GameStop as is, of course, Huge entities like Amazon, all sorts of other things. Crunchyroll is a streaming service, et cetera, et cetera. It has all these other digital competitors. And coronavirus is sort of like the perfect storm for that. Not that Melvin Capital predicted that. But Melvin Capital did disclose that it was interested in these shorts. And because Melvin Capital is a, had a good reputation for being a very stable, thoughtful hedge fund, there are also a bunch of clone hedge funds that take a look at Melvin Capital's reports and say, well, you might not be a high roller who gets to throw in with Melvin Capital, but you can come with us and we basically, not entirely, but basically replicate their investment strategies as they right. disclose them, right? That's so, right. Yeah, yeah, it's a web of inter- interconnected things. So I'm wondering if you can tell us who figured this out and like, how did that play out over time? And as we go through that, I'm sure we will start talking about some more terminology and nail some things down. Um, you mean like who figured out that Melvin Capital was taking that? Yeah, position? was that deep fucking value to put so, that together? So, so my understanding is that deep fucking value, who is active on the uh, the the Reddit forum Wall Street Bets, that's played a really important role in all of this, and he also has a YouTube channel called Roaring Kitty, which um, is very entertaining actually he just for what it worth he seems like such a genuine guy <laughs> um yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh investing but anyway, using yeah. a magic eight ball is like a pretty incredible thing to do you just sort of have to love it <laughs> yeah. yeah so he is uh you know he's a retail investor right he also i guess it kind of came out he he works as a financial advisor At uh, for some company. or did up until and, yeah. january yeah, and and that can get complicated because I think that if you're a financial advisor and you are having a a public presence, if you're if you know if you, if you for instance wanted to publish like an opinion piece in a in a newspaper, you know you, your your company would want you to disclose that to them, and they would often um, uh, I've, I've I I know people who have you know wanted to publish a book and been mm-hmm. told by the company they work for like no don't do that. So I think, he, I think he, he might be in a little bit of trouble around that right now, yeah, but yeah. the, um, but he, uh, uh, he is an investor and he had an opinion about GameStop. He thought that GameStop was very undervalued. I think his perspective was basically that he just thought the price was too low and he, he wasn't alone in that too. Like Michael Burry got in on that last summer 
bought up a ton of GameStop for this similar opinion, I think. Like, it was a very value investment-oriented opinion at the time. Yes, value investing and, like, you know, fundamental kind of based investing definitely informed that opinion that deep fucking value formed. And, you know, although this has kind of become much more like a speculative bubble, it, it is kind of interesting to, to look back at, at some of the things that he initially said about this. And, and he's making a fundamentals, you know, argument for, for this company. But yeah, Melvin Capital and other hedge funds, you know, had formed a different opinion. And a very common practice in, in the investment world is to take a short position because of, because of a perfectly well-informed opinion or whatever, right? And then publish several like uh, newsletters and reports about the company who you're shorting and saying why they will go out of business or why they should go out of business or why you think they will. Yeah, it's sort of like when you turn in uh, information to the FBI on a political opponent and then have a reporter write a thing that says the FBI is looking into information about so-and-so that was like delivered to them, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't really say what the FBI is going to do about that or anything, you know? It's just like, well, they're looking at it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like, I wish you would give us a little more information. Yeah. You know, and, and in those reports, of course, they, they, you know, they have to disclose like, you know, by the way, we're short the stock. Another common practice, by the way, is if you're a company that's being shorted or if you're an investor who is invested in a company that has had these reports written about it, a very common practice is to tarnish the reputation of the, of the people who are producing these reports. So, I mean, it's a, it's a very, it's a very cutthroat world. And I guess, I guess one thing that, you know, is important to get out there is a lot of people have been sort of, I think, looking at this in a very Macanian way, shorting bad, long, good. And it's a little more complicated than that. Anyway, I think I'm kind of veering off of the- No, 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 we're, we're good. So Deep Fucking Value, Michael Berry, a few others do this. Now, Deep Fucking Value, I'm assuming, takes to Wall Street bets at some point. Wall Street bets- is a Reddit where people are on Robinhood. Now we'll go into what Robinhood is and what its relationship is with stuff in a second. But the way I understand this, and Matt, you can tell me if it's wrong, Wall Street Pets is basically just a place for people who are on Robinhood or other apps where you can do retail trading. Retail trading is basically like uh, investing in stocks on like a daily basis, watching the market, all of these things. And you're not necessarily a major firm. You're an independent Yeah, I mean, that's the key thing is that retail investors are typically individuals. Yes, they're not like like you and me. They're they're not a hedge fund. They're not a bank. They're Mm -hmm. not a pension fund. Um, they're not what what all of those things would be called institutional investors. Yes. So yeah. you could break it out very these two categories of you know institutional investors and retail investors. Since the '90s, there's been a big growth in retail investing. A lot of people are looking at the events of these past couple of weeks and saying, "Wow, retail investing has really come into its own here," mm-hmm. um, because retail investing retail investors are typically called like dumb money. Because the idea is, you know, like they're less informed. They, you know, they don't have the kind of, you know, institutional uh, knowledge. They certainly don't have the, you know, largesse of, of first of all, just capital. And mm. then, you know, all of the analysis and risk management teams that, 
you know, kind of make up a lot of these. Right, the physical and human capital that comes with having a large amount of capital at your disposal, right? And there's an idea that, you know, they're more speculative, you know, retail investors are, you know, more into day trading. uh, Right, right, all of that stuff. Some of those are true, some of it's not. Right, so it's part of what's going on here. Now, Wall Street bets, of course, experiences a huge uptick in membership as do apps like Robinhood during the pandemic, because a we're all inside and can't do anything B because of YouTube and things like that. It's frankly way easier to learn about how all of this stuff works. There is more and better quality information out there. And there's also some shit too, but that's life. And also no sports were happening, which is a tough break for gambling addicts. (laughs) Um, No kidding. And that's a whole economy. (laughs) Uh, and so a yeah. lot of those people took to Wall Street bets, right? And it's not just those guys. Obviously, there are a whole bunch of different people there, as we started to learn as this whole thing unspooled, right? So here's what I haven't been able to place, Matt, and I'm wondering if you could clarify it for me. How exactly does the GameStop thing gain traction in mm. Wall Street bets? I don't think there's any complete answer to that question because it's as complex and multifaceted as asking, like, why does anything go viral? You know, I, mm. I think sort of the same, the same kind of logic applies. This event was unique in many ways, but what was it? It was a, a lot of speculative trading around a stock. That's not really unusual. No, you know? not in a, and of itself. Yeah, this stock was heavily shorted, but a short squeeze has happened before. This one was pretty this one was pretty dramatic and notable, but it's not like the first time it's happened. This one had a lot of memes. This one had it a had lot of memes. It had that 2016 election vibe <laughs> yeah, to it. It's, yeah, it's the only thing that made me feel like I was on Facebook in 2015 when you had all of those meme pages with the long ass titles. Mm-hmm. And it was like every <laughs> month there would basically be like a new like the Arthur Finch uh, fist clench meme or stuff like that, or Harambe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think one of my favorite memories from 2015 is being on the Metra in Chicago, and a bunch of kids were coming home from Lollapalooza at the same time I was coming home from something else. And in one of those weird lulls of silence, some girl just went to scream dicks out for Harambe and realized no one else was talking <laughs> and cut herself off, and the entire car <laughs> burst out laughing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So part of it's that. So maybe we can say that before we get into that, why don't you just tell us about this um, maneuver you mentioned? Yeah, like what are the mechanics of a short? Like what are you really doing when you yeah. short something? Yeah, so like like when you're going long a stock, it's kind of, you just buy it, right? You can buy derivatives tied to it as well. But uh, really the simplest way to bet that a stock's price will increase is to buy the stock and then wait for it to increase and then sell the stock or hold on to it for, you know, a whole a whole long time and, and just, just, you know, receive dividends on it eventually or whatever, but um, which are just payments made to, to shareholders from the company. So betting that a stock's price will decline might be a little more complicated. When you short a stock, you borrow the stock from another person and you sell it and then you buy it back later and then give it back to the person you borrowed it from. And that's how you short a stock. So, so imagine just a little example might kind of help. Just imagine, you know, there's a stock trading at $10 and you think that it's going to go to $5, right? So somebody, you know, holds the stock, they, they own the stock. So you, you, so you can borrow it from them. Say, say that to borrow it, they want interest. So you're borrowing something from them and then going to give it back later. That's a loan, right? So it's common to charge interest. 
So say, say the interest is $1, right? So you borrow the stock, you're going to pay them a dollar when you give it back to them, right? So you, so you borrow the stock and you sell it today, right? So you've made $10 today. And then a month from now, let's say when you give it back, if the stock did what you thought it would, it goes down to five, right? So now you go buy the stock in the market for $5. So you sold it for 10 and now you're buying it for five. So you've already made $5 right? And then you're going to give it back to the person you borrowed it from and then give them the extra dollar interest, right? So you made $4 on that trade. And that's, that's how that works is when you're shorting, you're essentially borrowing and then giving back after the price has declined. You know, shorting can be very risky because if the price increases, your potential loss could be unlimited. So just another sort of illustrating example, if today it's, it's trading at, at 10, you think it's going to go to five, but what really happens is it goes to 20 and you were wrong. So you've borrowed this, you've sold it, you've, you've got $10, right? Oh, but then it goes to 20. So now you have to go buy it to give it back to the person you borrowed it from. You have to go spend $20, right? So now you've lost $10. Plus interest. Plus the one that makes it 11, right? So there's no theoretical like hard cap on how high a stock's price could go. You know, so I mean, that's sort of what this whole thing was about. Yeah, to the moon, to the moon. Why not? Why not go all the way up? Yeah. So it seems like a lot of people found out on Wall Street Bets that GameStop was short. It was people like Michael Burry, who has a lot of cachet, especially after the book and then the movie, The Big Short comes out because uh, it's played by Christian Bale. Yeah, he's played by Christian Bale, (laughs) and that dude was fucking right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. They were shorting, actually. It's very ironic to me that a lot of the memes that you're seeing right now, or, or maybe you know, two weeks ago on, on Wall Street Bets, on the Reddit forum, it would be videos from scenes of the big short mm. where, uh, where the guys who are shorting the housing market are sort of portrayed, the, the, the analog to them is that these are the Wall Street Bets guys and they're going after, they're going after the big hedge fund investors. And what's interesting about that is it's the exact opposite trade, <laughs> you know, that, that's portrayed yeah. in that movie, you know. So this time around, the bad guys, quote unquote, are the short sellers, right? Or that's sort of the narrative uh, that sort of snowballed online around this. But in 2008, the bad guys were the people who were betting that the stock that the um, or excuse me, that the uh, that the housing market would just inexorably recover and, 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 uh, and increase. Maybe I guess the rating agencies who were like, these things are very valuable. (laughs) (laughs) All these promises are great. Um, Or the the Community Reinvestment Act, you know, further, you know, or Fannie and Freddie. There's a whole set of, of, uh, you know, kind of institutional uh, uh, puts in there. Yeah, 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 players players and all this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what I started to see was captivating to me about this as I was like, going on to wall street bets and reading posts and watching it is that i can understand that it was attractive for several reasons one money you could stand to make some money things are bad people want to make money people want to make money even when things are good but things are especially bad there's also been sort of a shift in investment culture i would say where it is not necessarily long for the long term over time but uh make your nut now and never have to worry again which can often benefit some high volume trades. That's not everybody. Um, but I think, especially because of things like the big short and the hero's narrative there, a lot of people are attracted to the idea that they might win big off of something like that and be set up. And okay, I get it. And then a part of it was uh, 
I don't know, like this weird sort of vestiges of like gamer culture on the internet and the idea that like they were saving GameStop seemed particularly attractive, you know? Somebody put it well when they said that there's, you know, let's say like so many GameStop stores and maybe so many employees per store. Now, when you stop and think about it, if they want GameStop to go out of business, they want all those guys to lose their jobs. And every single one of those guys is a gamer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that was gamers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With gamers. So that, and, and then there was just the many people who were just like, well, I'm sure are uh, angry about the way that certain lockdown policies have been in place and the way certain things have shaken out over the coronavirus. They've watched, as I have where I live, plenty of businesses close, even chains forever. close forever. Um, and they're tired of it. And they're tired of it, right? Uh, And then there are people who, these were some of the most moving ones, whether they were true or not, I'm sure some of them were, where people would talk about what they'd lost in 2008. Yeah, and then they would say, and they would say, I don't fucking care how much money I lose. I want these guys to fucking bleed because all that ever happens is they get bailed out and like, I want my revenge. And there seemed like I was. Like when people talk about like um, the populist narrative of that, that stuff was because it's a Medicean and B like I'm getting worked up thinking about it now very emotionally resonant after watching a bunch of people get fucked over by fraudsters who then got bailed out by the fed in a lockdown where people have basically been left to go screw due to really bad policies and things like that. It was very, very resonant. And of course, we're all living very online at right now. So I think that that's part of what happened. Plus the window for the squeeze looks like it's going to close soon. Right. So it starts to rev up as that's happening. And we should probably, because we've, we've, we've used the term squeeze a few times and I, we, we, I should probably explain what's meant by that. So, but I want to, of course, circle back to what you're saying, because it's, you know, it's, it's uh, who would have thought that Occupy Wall Street would have kind of seen its revival in an actual wall street day trading yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 like, yeah. which yeah. it turns out uh, was like a lot cooler and more meaningful <laughs> yeah like as it turns out actually is like much more you know uniting and anyway um the, uh you know maybe this was their objective all along yeah um, yeah uh <laughs> which was left vague and you know, the alinsky option <laughs> yeah yeah this whole time we were like a sleeper accelerationist uh movement. <laughs> I just so I described before how you short a stock, right? Mm. And I should I, I should say a couple other things, right? One number that's been talked about a lot is that the shares that were short in GameStop uh, amounted to 140 percent of the float. Meaning, there's say there's 100 shares, you might expect some proportion of these to be borrowed at some time by shorts, but you can have more than those hundred shares shorted by just like this, right? So say that I borrow a, a stock from somebody to short it, right? And then immediately, like I said before, I sell it at the high price today, right? So now that stock is owned by somebody and maybe another short comes along and wants to borrow it from them and to do the same thing again. So all of these shares are fungible, right? It's not like, it's not like each of these shares is you know, being, being tracked or whatever. There's a, yeah. there's, there's a whole market for them you can just sort of go and buy some homogenous share. So that's, you know, that double borrowing is how, how there are essentially more shares shorted than exist, right? Because multiple shares have been borrowed multiple times. Right. Anyway, it's, it's when stacked. you see, 
Yes, exactly. So when you see uh, that much shorting activity take place, there's sometimes there's an opportunity for what's called a short squeeze, which is what's been happening with, with GameStop. So how that, how that happens, right, is so if I'm shorting a stock, right, and the price goes up, what I have to do is buy back shares at those mm-hmm. higher prices in order to cover my margin, right? So mm-hmm. I should maybe, I should back up even a little bit further, right? So when I, when I want to short something, I call up my broker and say, I want to short XYZ. The broker understands that, well, the price could go down or it could go up. This guy might make money on this trade or he might lose money on this trade. In either event, I have to make sure that this guy has enough money in his account to pay for you know, the situation where, where he doesn't make money on the trade. So if the stock price is 10 today and I'm betting it'll go to five. Uh, great, no, prob- no problem if it goes to five, right? But if I'm betting it's 10 today and I want it to go to five, but instead it goes up, right? Say, you know, it goes, the, the stock price goes to 20. My broker is going to call me and say, hey, the price of XYZ is at 20 today. You borrowed it at 10. So what you need to do is put an extra $10 in your account. So like right? more cash. Yeah, you need to have more cash in your account because mm-hmm. I need to know as the broker that you can pay for this, right? right. You, you need to buy this stock back and then give it to the guy you, you borrowed it from. Right. And I need to know that you can do that. You know, tomorrow the stock price might plummet down to, down to seven and be on its way to five. But right now, so, so you'll get that call from your broker in that event, right? Now, mm. it's very difficult. And th- this happened in, in the dot-com boom as well, right? A lot of people were saying, you know, the stock market's going way too high. I bet it's going to, I bet it's going to fall. And like, you know, eventually they were right, <laughs> right? But you have to be right at the right time. You have to be right at the right time, right? <laughs> Timing is everything. Right, exactly. Yeah. So a yeah. lot of people, uh, and I was talking to somebody who did this the other day. He was telling me, oh yeah, you know, you can, you know, you can lose a lot of money shorting because like I have, you know, and he was, uh, he was, he was, he was saying how, you know, he shorted Yahoo and he was like, this, you know, Yahoo's price is like, you know, Yahoo.com's price is Damn, like, in the late like, 90s, like, early 2000s, whoo, boy, that's a rough ride shorting Yahoo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, so he did, so he, so he short, he called up his broker, said, I want to short Yahoo. So he, you know, he borrowed the shares today, sold them today, but instead it kept going up and he kept getting calls from his broker saying, you need to put more cash in your account. So that, so that if this trade doesn't turn out well for you, you can, you know, you can cover it. So as it keeps going up, there's tremendous pressure on the shorter to say, fuck it, I'm, I'm out of this. I'm cutting my losses. So what they'll do is they'll just close it out by buying the shares and then giving it back to the person they borrowed it from. Now, when they do that, when they buy those shares, they're increasing the demand for those shares. Yeah, line so go the- up. Right. If, 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 if what they're responding to is an increase in price, they'll sort, there'll be sort of a, um, a vicious cycle from the, yeah. standpoint of the, from the standpoint of a short. It's a virtuous cycle from the standpoint of somebody who's long in the stock because these shorters are, are going to increase the demand and make it go higher. So it's so, like cascading, basically. Exactly. And, yeah. if, exactly. and, and if there are more shortage shares than actually exist... It's a you're going to see you're, you're, it's going to be magnified. Yeah, right. It's going to be quite the cascade, and that's exactly how to return it to our conversation about sort of the um, resentment that's at play here with some of this because it was at play was that people on Robinhood, and we'll get to how Robinhood works in a second. This will be our segue to that. Uh, is that people were just like, 
fuck you guys. Now you bleed. Like, right, oh, because, you were going to crush this thing. Like, now I'm going to squeeze your short and you're going to be out a whole lot more money than you perhaps are able to pay was the hope yes. for some of these guys. Yes, I'm going to make you bleed and, 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 and you are going to have to cover your position and that's going to make the stock price go up even more. It was perceived last week as this, you know, populist uprising. We're going to squeeze these hedge funds. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to make them pay and we're going to save this company we love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it's totally. Sort of a conf- confluence of perfect storm kind of thing. So Matt, I was wondering if you could break down for us how Robinhood works and what its relationship with like a clearinghouse works. And that'll help us understand some of the fact, half-truths, fiction, whatever we want to say about their relationship with Citadel. You say it's, a, it's, it's an app on your phone. I know it's not on either of your guys' phones because I've sent you the request where we both get a free stock and neither of you have picked up on it. So let's get rich together. Wait, really? Um, Did you do that? I think I, think I sent John one like last week. I, I think I sent Emmett, I think I sent you one like two years ago. <laughs> That's extremely funny that you sent one to me two years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, I, I, for for a time it's like it's like okay so like the way robin it's like like you said like it, it's an app you download on your phone or your computer that allows you to trade stocks and allows you to trade cryptocurrencies also it, mm. it, it allows you to trade a lot of etfs and there, there are there are a lot of different securities but mostly it's stocks it's a brokerage so they work with a clearinghouse that's sort of the chain right there's an investor you there's the brokerage, Robinhood, who also, you know, brokerages in the old days would get calls from, from investors saying, sell this, buy this. And now, you know, thanks to Robinhood, thanks to a lot of other internet kind of innovations around these things, it's much more of an application interface kind of deal. Um, but it's still a brokerage. So they, um, so, so they receive an order from you and they send that order to, to a clearinghouse, basically. They send that order to, you know, they, they send that order to a market maker, like we were saying before. So is a clearinghouse so, and a market maker, like what's the relationship between these two terms? Are they somewhat interchangeable? Uh, you know, they're somewhat interchangeable. I mean, I think uh, that's actually that's actually a good question. I'm going to try to not act like I fully know the answer to that question. Because okay, I'll I put it in that, the show notes. Yeah, yeah fair I, enough. <laughs> I, I, think, I think like basically like like, there's a lot of behind the curtain infrastructure to this stuff. And I think sometimes people are playing multiple roles in that. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, I, th- I think th- there are like ideal types, right. That I could, that yeah. I could appeal to that like there's the broker and there's, there's the clearinghouse and there's, okay. there's the market maker and there's so like, okay. So important to the, to the clearinghouse kind of story. Right. And by the way, I should, I should, I should say too, right. I'm a PhD student in finance, which by the way, means that, None of these things that we're talking about, I have learned at all in my finance degree. <laughs> like that's like amazing. The, the zero, zero about this stuff. The the actual inner workings of like you know how the market actually functions on a day to day basis not covered. It's much more abstract and theoretical there, and <laughs> and maybe may be useless. Although it's useful in a lot of ways. But anyway, mm-hmm. so there's a market maker, and Robinhood is a broker. So you know the broker gets a call from the investor. Say they want to buy this. Okay, so the broker goes to the clearinghouse. Say we want to buy this. The uh, uh, the clearinghouse matches buyers and sellers and records all of these trades. The clearinghouse sort of is the market maker. 
1973, I think, an institution uh, came into being called the uh, Depository Trust Corporation. Um, I'm missing an acronym, a, a letter in there, but it's the DTCC, mm-hmm. and they're they're sort of, they're sort of the central clearinghouse. So if you're a broker, you're making a high volume of trading with with, with the clearinghouse you might get a call from the DTC, DTCC saying, hey, there's a large volume of trading. There's a lot of volatility on these assets you're trading. And in order for us to fill these orders, we need to know that you're good for them. So you need to raise your reserves with us. You need so to- So it's quite similar to the relationship between the broker and the individual in that there arise concerns with volatility. So this was- it's all about who's holding that risk, right? There's the risk that it all goes south and nobody can pay. So who's who's holding it, right? Mm-hmm. And the, you know the broker doesn't want the broker holds it sometimes, but I mean to a certain degree, everybody along the chain is holding that risk at, at, in, to some degree. But there are kind of some efficiencies to be gained by sort of housing that risk, so to speak, with a central entity, especially given the volume of some of the trading. So sorry, I interrupted you. So this is like so. Robinhood suddenly has a massive amount of orders for GameStop. And it turns out, at least this is the story, they don't have enough to cover it, essentially. So they have to severely restrict trading while they spend a day essentially getting a ton of loans so that they can start reopening trading the next day on some of these more volatile assets. Is that like basically the story that they're, that they're giving us? That is the official story. And, okay. and then sort of on the other side of that, right, the unofficial story is that, hey, Citadel owns a large portion of GameStop and Citadel is invested in entities that have or has itself shorted a lot of these these companies that are the focus of the short squeeze. So they stand right. to lose, let's say, if, if, if GameStop increases in value. So I guess the thing about those two stories is that the... The, the official story is actually like very reasonable and plausible. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> like, I was yeah, like, like, there's no, there's nothing really mysterious about that. I mean, like, what's weird? What's weird is just that, like, the like the volume of trading is crazy, and the the fact that it's shorted like 140 percent. I think there's a lot of like fail to. Uh, uh, so 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 when when a stock is borrowed short and um, the person who has shorted it can't afford to go buy the shares. There's a technical term for that, but basically they fail, they fail to give the shares back to the person they borrowed them from. Right. And um, you know, there's a certain amount of that that happens for any stock at any given time. And, and it's just been crazy high for GameStop. And, and mm-hmm. by the way, you know, for AMC, for BlackBerry, for a lot of these other these other companies. Nokia, yeah. I'll say this, like, if we're wondering, okay, so the official story is very plausible given everything that we've laid out here. I think that that's probably what happened. What am I ask, why does this story about Citadel happen? And part of that's because, as Matt said, like, they might very well be tied up in some of these shorts and could stand to get very hurt by some of these trades. That could be the case. It's also the relationship that Citadel has with Robinhood, which I've read some places where basically like when you sign up for Robinhood, it's sort of like when you sign up for Twitter and that like you're the product 
Twitter makes its money off of selling ads. So a bunch of people and aggregating data, getting that data so that they can sell it to people, et cetera, et cetera. And it might very well be the case that because Robinhood has all of this lucrative data on people, it is in their interest to sell parts of it to someone like Citadel so that Citadel can anticipate the way that some of these trades are going to go. Now, I can't totally verify that. I'm just trying to outline how some of these things might work, why some people might be suspicious, and why we're still waiting for some things to come out in the wash. And really yeah. viscerally too, like if you're sitting there and you just bought a bunch of GameStop and it's rising and the next day you're like, okay, I'm ready to buy more. Like it's going down. You wake up and you can't trade. You're like, okay, like, you know what I mean? Like, Who I don't me? really, yeah. yeah, I don't need to know <laughs> yeah. anything except like, let me trade. Like what the, you know? Yeah. And then people are like, okay, like, how do I get my money out of Robinhood? This is taking so long. It takes you like five days to sign up with like Schwab. And like, yeah. it's like all this stuff is going on and all you can really see is that there is a lot of money to be made. You could have made it with the money that you had, but they wouldn't let you. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, that's enough. That's a very easy emotional situation to understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, and especially because in Matt, um, I, this is something that um, we took a little break for a second there. We wanted to, to get to is, is part of like what all this means is because there were some very large hedge, fund, hedge funds and some very powerful people who did not want this to happen, right? Of or course. who were felt very threatened by what happened. And the Wall Street bets people on Robinhood were very aware that there were people who did not want and, this to happen. And, and reveling in it. Yes, loving it. I mean, I couldn't help but love when there was just some like billionaire, like almost fucking crying on TV, being like they shorted, like these people don't know. And I was just like, I get it. (laughs) Like This rules, (laughs) you know, Um, I was like, fuck this guy, you know? Yeah. Maybe this is a political side note, but like it's, you know, there's an awful lot of anti-elite, political rhetoric out there on on both sides of the political spectrum um and it's it's rare to see people put their money where their mouth is just my opinion but you know talk is cheap you know i mean talk is very important too i don't mean to say that persuasion and and these things these things are these things are clearly you know important things but you know when you see someone talking one way but spending their money in a totally opposite way i tend to feel very cynically about that so it's that's almost the if, only way to maybe feel about that. Yeah. You know, I don't know how else to feel about that. But when I see, you know, when I see people say, I want to stick it to these guys and how I'm going to do that is, and this is also the thing, right? I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people where they say, I hate this company and uh, I want to stick it to them. And I'm thinking, well, here's what you should do. <laughs> you know, you should short their stock and go mm-hmm. along everything they're shorting, mm-hmm. you know, and hope everybody else does that and make a case for why that should be the, that, why that should, why that should happen, you know, or if you don't, you know, if you don't like how this company is run, oh, well, okay, you ought to short the stock, gain a 5% share in, in the company, put a vote before shareholders to, to change management and, you know, turn it into a totally different company that complies with your, your ethical standards. And if yeah, people I, agree with you, they'll, they'll be a replacement of management. I really, this guy once was talking about like basic investment advice and he was saying like the first thing you should think about is like, what do you care about? And is it like having a nice place to live? 
you know, not having like crime and degradation and things like that. And if that's the case, then maybe you should think about like, what are you doing with your money? You know what I mean? Like, are you investing in stuff that's going to make that true? Or are you just putting your money, you know, are you thinking about this in terms of like my investment is going to have real world consequences and making like gaining more liquidity is not the only thing that I stand to get out of investing. Like it has an effect on the world and what effect am I having on the world of my investments? And I think to some extent he was probably right that a great many people who, who can invest, who have enough money to, to, you know, do some real investing. Maybe those are two separate things in their mind, you know, maybe like there's the real world and then there's the world where I'm making money, but they're connected. And on some level, like this is a real, maybe anti-left point, but like what I do matters. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I mean, you might not be I have a responsibility. That. Yeah. I have a responsibility to like do the right thing if that's what I believe in. And I think there is a case of, of maybe like those two ways of thinking are broken apart for many people. Yeah. And I would say this, right. So there's this whole movement in like the nineties and in the early two thousands that I remember, like, you guys remember like gap red, where you could buy like jeans made by slave labor. And when you bought the jeans, then like the extra money went to Africa and uh, Bono was just like, we've solved politics, right? Like that. And that, that was a whole thing. And the whole idea was like consumer ethics. You vote with your wallet, but this social was, entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship. A lot of this stuff was very limited in its scope. Something like Robin hood means that potentially you can fuck up some fat cats day like real serious if you can convince enough people to help you do it. And like, that's type the type of threat that we're talking about. So it's a continuation, I would say of that like sort of ethos and perhaps has maybe similar limitations though far fewer than being circumscribed to the greenwashed bullshit gap sells you or whatever, <laughs> right? Like this is quite obviously as we saw uh, provokes more of a reaction. And there are also- a lot of great stories too of like, a kid making a ton of money and then like most of it goes to charity, you know, like there were clearly people who were doing something without where profit motive wasn't the only driving force and it had some effect, you know, I don't know how much, but student loans, paying off student uh, loans. uh, One guy paid for his sister's Lyme's disease treatment and like, yeah, off his mom's debt. Like, yeah. Or like one guy was just like, my dad ran a concrete business and we lost everything in 2008. Now my dad's drinking himself to death. It can't stop. And he was just like, I am never letting go of this stock. Like, I don't care how much I lose. These guys are going to pay. It's inspiring to see. There's probably a little bit of a bias in the data toward, toward like, more people posting positive things around around this. Right. I mean, there are also just some real cutthroat motherfuckers that don't care, that want to make money. There are people that, as we said, are just gambling addicts and can't help themselves. They're not in their right mind when they're doing any of this. Um, And, and, And you can see how you wouldn't want to post a screenshot of your enormous loss. Right. Exactly. Because this stuff did end up hurting. Like, you know, it uh, as many people who've got to do these things, there are a lot of people who got fucked like in the long run, right? Like, and a lot of them were pretty small. You know, there were some like talking heads on these finance things that weren't totally wrong when they were just like, they might've been cynical, but they were in principle, right? That there were going to be a lot of retail traders who got really screwed at a time when things are not very good and might be worse off than when they started, you know, that this was like a a madness of crowds situation. Mm -hmm. 
and they were totally correct in that. I mean, yeah. you know, but but I, the the you mentioned before the, the, this interview with Chamath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> on CNBC, you know, and he kind of fires back with some of those sort of a response to that that trepidation around uh, around oh, but you know, a bunch of retail investors could could really get screwed on this, you know, and end up holding the bag uh, once once this once this all goes south and. And th- there's, of course, the ethical question of, well, should we treat retail investors like children or should we treat them like adults? Should we hold them to similar assumptions about how much agency and decision-making power they have as we do with supposedly smart money mm-hmm. uh, hedge fund guys? Or- and then, like, yeah, do they have a right to transact business in the market or not? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be, what kind of society do we live in? Yeah. yeah. Well, the other thing is, yeah, it's a question of standards too, because the way we also treat these big money guys is completely fucking unfair in that like they can't seem to fail ever. And so there are some huge moral hazard questions that go with that. I mean, this is why we saw an interesting confluence of people like Matt Taibbi, who writes Griftopia, who's generally a left progressive, basically published an op-ed that had the same Hayekian argument for all of this stuff that his nemesis, Thomas Friedman, wrote the same mm-hmm. week, you know? Um, so I think yeah. this shows, however you might feel about this listener, because I'm sure we all, the three of us have different perspectives um, on all of this, it highlights something that we talk a lot about on the show, which is a sense of a death of common standards in America and a mounting feeling of resentment and sometimes resignation that comes out of that. And I think this was a very potent example of how that played out in finance. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, and I mean, on the point of standards, just to sort of, you know, further complicate the narrative, right. Uh, there, there are accusations of like market manipulation. And I guess it's important to know that like, there are decent cases to be made on both sides of this about market manipulation, that what was going on on Reddit, you know, some would argue and might maybe, you know, convincingly that what you saw on Reddit does qualify under, uh, under SEC regulations as, as a kind of market manipulation. There's a really good article on Seeking Alpha that kind of runs down a lot of the relevant regula- SEC regulations around this that, we, that I'll, I'll, I'll send you. I guess I just want to highlight that, like, it's not totally clear to me what the SEC is going to do or who the SEC is going to perceive as the bad guy in this, or if the SEC is going to pursue a whole lot of action around this. It's just that the jury's still out, right? There's a case to be made that, you know, Robinhood shutting down trading and, you know, and hedge funds shorting and putting out, you know, reports on, you know, to, 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 you know, sort of augment those trades or, you know, yeah, you know, maybe that's manipulation. Also, maybe starting a, you know, viral, you know, pseudo political online movement around buying a stock is also, you know, a form of manipulation. And, and it's, um, it's not totally clear how it's going to, it's, it's all going to shake out. Right. Yeah. And one of the reasons, you know, that Matt, you know, we talked while we were taking a break about this is that a lot of this happened because of, you know, people got some spare tendies because of the stimmy checks. And when we're talking about how things can go viral and if that's market manipulation or a lot, you know, the algorithm might know what's going to go viral, but you who are posting do not. So there is this whole community, if you go on like TikTok or something like that, of people who now they won't call it this because they have an interest in saving their own ass and I don't blame them, financial advice on how to flip your stimulus checks into stuff like that. So this was, people had 
you know, maybe they weren't the most um, desperate or working class people in this country uh, had some money to spend because of the stimulus checks and wanted to play around. Um, and we're getting all sorts of information from all sorts of sources, some of it good, some of it bad, but it speaks to, as you were saying, retail trading coming its in, into its own. Like looking at this, I don't think that there's like a, a way that's clear to me to like go back, whatever that was supposed to mean. Like the mark has been made both discursively and like financially that this is a thing to be reckoned with, right? Which is why some major entities who could stand to lose from this were, I mean, it's hard to read the poll of the Wall Street Bets Discord server for hate speech as anything other than somebody probably with a lot of skin in the game trying to fuck these people out of Yeah, shutting down the Discord server, I think, yeah, I I cannot make any sense of that beyond... It all smell right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I I can't make any sense of that beyond hedge funds who own partially, you know, Discord wanting to shut down things that were uh, not in their interest. I mean, I... You know, I mean, then again, they have the standards. So I don't know, but I mean, they have the standards. And, uh, but yeah, in, in that, like I said before, the clearinghouse explanation makes sense to me more in terms of why Robinhood shut down trading totally. temporarily. Yeah. Yeah. I think and by the way, we should Robin be clear Hood's... because a lot of that, a lot is being re- misreported, right? Robinhood didn't shut down all trading. What they did, yeah, what they did was they prevented buying <laughs> and, yeah. and allowed selling. Yeah. You could sell. Which, you know, you can imagine would, you know, it, pressure, pressure prices downward. Right. So, and and the other uh, thing was that uh, they weren't very clear about why they were doing that up when it first happened. And, yeah. you know, Matt, you and I were talking uh, about like the honesty is the best policy, uh, like just a simple moral lesson there. Like it's sort of like I don't know if you guys saw that piece that came out in Time magazine. I sent it to John that uh, is basically like how the AFL-CIO and a bunch of other groups like worked to make sure that the election went smoothly and things like that. <laughs> and and which which could be like true at some level, like I'm not going to get into like that here, but what I will say is even if everything that happened there was like above board, the writer of that piece literally called it in a in approving way a secret cabal, you know, and stuff like that, and it was just sort of like this isn't going to help anything. Like the way that you've done this isn't going to increase anyone's confidence in anything that's happening right now right and that's sort of the mistake that robin hood makes yeah like as a as a a company policy i think everybody's i think a lot of people are looking at robin hood's actions and saying uh whether they had to do it or not um or whether their pr could have been you know better they've their well their reviews are in the shitter on the on the app store however their downloads are way up so (laughs) You know, yeah. Take that as you will. Yeah, yeah. I really like. On that note, one of the like options I guess offered up for possibilities of what we could see in the future is like regulations on on things like that from the government. Like, because you can just get on Robinhood and just start trading options and whatever. You know, like I don't know what options are, but I'm trading them. Like, <laughs> like yeah, that. we should. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, like, so that's one of the like. One of the ideas of the future, like possible futures for retail trading is like just severe restrictions on what you can do or like different ways of like forcing you to jump through a lot of hoops before you can have, you know, what you can do today right off the bat. Like 
I don't know. It's it'll be interesting to see because I know some politicians are kind of being like, we need more regulation, obviously. Um, yeah, the, which the, the, like like what I said before was like sort of more about like enforcement of existing rules, right? Like like in in, in other words, in, in terms of enforcing existing rules, the SEC could potentially punish no one, punish certain hedge funds, punish certain market makers, or punish individual retail traders. I don't know what will happen because there are potential reasonable arguments on both fronts. But what you're saying, John, though, about what about new regulation? What about, and yeah, you bet. I mean, people are, I'm certain that there are people lining out the door of, of Congress to, uh, you know, propose their, you know, their new fix to this. And, and you know, conversations around what that looks like go to uh, increasing some kind of standards that would make it more difficult for retail investors to uh, just download an app and start trading. So that's one thing being discussed. Uh, you know, other things include, uh, you know, maybe we should uh, have some kind of regulatory change that would, you know, in increase uh, reserves that that brokers have to hold at clearing houses because, um, you know, yeah, that stabilize could, that could, that... the whole, the whole thing a little bit more. Right. Or, you know, maybe some kind of limitations on short selling, you know, is, 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 is another thing out there. You know, why are these, why are these people shorting 140% of GameStop? Of like, you know, don't, as we said, like part of that thing was just like, oh, they'll hurt all these people who work at the cash registers there, which like perhaps, but it's also worth noting that like uh, you discover a lot about a company when you short. So, you know, Elon Musk was, is very anti-short because he's gotten caught with his ass out um, a couple of times of being shorted on things. Yeah, I mean, his company did not been... actually increase in value in any real way and was fucking up and that got revealed. Or one of the major banking uh, frauds of this century so far, which was the Wirecard scandal, got exposed because people shorted Wirecard. Mm. Yeah, in... Um... In what year was that? Like in uh, that was legit uh, over the last like two years. Yeah, it was like recent, right? It was like yeah. yeah, yeah. I was reading those stories as the pandemic was happening. That the Financial Times guy that cracked the case started releasing his major videos and pieces about it. Um, oh, at close to the outset of the pandemic. You well, know, there's like there, there's a lot of like sort of like financial events that could potentially trigger some kind of a you know scrutiny from regulators uh, and, and and scrutiny from from legislators or, or rule makers who want to create new regulation around finance. But I mean, first of all, like, you know, the last four years been under the Trump presidency and like, you know, they're you know, a, 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 a stated goal from them for, you know, from sort of the beginning has been to decrease existing regulation and not create too many new regulations. So there's, you know, there's disassemble the administrative state. Yeah. Yeah. Bannon. Yeah. To, um, yeah. you know, and like sort of the, you know, the, the, one of the big rules around that is like, you know, uh, uh, if you want to, you know, include a new regulation, you have to, uh, uh, you know, uh, get rid of some existing regulation, maybe two existing regulations, something like that. There's like something like a, like a one for two kind of mm -hmm. rule. Um, so there's been a lot of forces that would, you know, prevent a lot of new regulation in the last four years. And also, you know, we're in this pandemic. So there's also sort of this added, hesitancy to impose new regulations on financial markets during a chaotic period of hardship already. But like, it, it does kind of seem like, I mean, Elizabeth Warren has, uh, has chimed in on this and her comments are kind of hard to read 
because again, she's sort of rhetorically saying we should go after the hedge funds, but she's also saying we should just enforce existing SEC regulations. And it doesn't, it's not really clear that SEC regulations would favor one party over the other. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, yeah, limits on short selling and limits on, uh, you know, new retail trading would be, would be things that, that they've been talked about. I mean, I could share, I could share like my like brief opinion on that. Right? I was about to say but, like, why don't, you know, we've been talking for a while. There's, we, I mean, we could probably do like a four hour episode on this, but we should probably move towards wrapping up. Um, and so I was wondering, sure. yeah, maybe we could close, do some finishing comments. Uh, if we have any hot takes we'd like to share. So Matt, I am happy to like sort of just hear you free flow on how you think about all this. And I think we'll just go around and do that. Sure. The SEC may enforce existing or adopt new regulations. I don't see how any of those regulations could be more effective or powerful than the market itself. In other words, the single biggest thing that regulated hedge funds that were shorting uh, shorting companies into the ground, you know, in the last couple of weeks has been retail investors. So, you know, the system just just exerted a tremendous, you know, regulatory force on institutions that have been short a bunch of companies. So I look at this whole episode and I kind of say, this is a lot of, this is a lot all at once, but I don't see anything working not as it should, really. You want to have short sellers in a market because you want to have sort of, you know, moderating um, effects on, 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 on prices. You know, you want to, you want to be able to allow people to benefit when a stock rises and benefit when a stock falls. And you, you want to have an incentive from, you know, several different quarters of, you know, investment community broadly, you know, be able to take different sides of different trades and, express their fraught opinions about an uncertain future through the price system in a fairly unencumbered way that really reflects where people think a company will, will end up. So, so you, you guys on your podcast often say this, right? Um, I've, I've heard this on a couple episodes, like, you know, be thinking about like, what, what do you think in your life will last? Right. And what do you think? And, and I, I guess will GameStop last? Will certain productive activities in the world, certain kinds of, of economic spaces and activities, will they will they be around, you know, forever or in ten years or tomorrow? And there are as many answers to that question as there are people, you know. So I see. Uh, I don't think GameStop will be around in ten years, but a whole bunch of people thought that it would be, and they disagreed with with people who thought that thought that they wouldn't be around. And they, they, took, they took that side of the trade and forced short sellers to, to, to pony up. Anyway, I'm going on a little too long here. I find it difficult to identify like concrete things in this whole situation that really ultimately demonstrate to me that, that the system isn't working in a deep fundamental sense. But I do see a lot of people looking at a lot of this activity and saying, we need to do something about this because some people are upset and you know i don't know i don't i, I don't know about that if what shakes up is that it becomes harder to be a retail investor that's going to make it difficult that's going to make it more difficult to punish short sellers when you disagree with them and you're right if we limit short selling that's going to make it more difficult to look at the market and say i think this is a bubble i think this is full of shit and I'm going to, you know, in, I'm going to sort of, uh, 
you know, enter my money into this space to, you know, uh, uh, affect a, a, yeah, uh, some sort of change, you know? Yeah. My, yeah. yeah. A, a correction. Yeah. I mean, I love that. That's like a rare laissez-faire take here on exhaust. So I'm glad that we could host it for our listeners to think about. John, do you have any? What I reflected on the most, I think from all of this was the fact that it made something feel possible, which I think is sort of, you know, it's what we're looking for in this show. Why does nothing feel possible? Well, for a moment, things surely did. Um, you know, and so I thought about that, like, well, why did things feel possible? And it was like, well, I'll just say like going off of a pretty common perception, especially maybe since 08, like, oh, the market is sufficiently rigged against people like us that we won't ever really be able to look to that as a space for like, um, for fairness or for like a shot at something good happening for us or like, you know, striking against other people as it turns out. It was kind of an idea that I think there is this moment where people were kind of like, this was the common belief. This was like the animating belief of the mass was like, no, like this is possible because they're on TV crying. So like, obviously something worked here. We can do this whole diamond hands, you know, like everybody stick together. Like as long as we march in formation, they can't possibly win that whole thing. There was a certain high to that, which I think a lot of people were writing. And I think in some ways it was the high of like possibility and it was interesting because if you, you know, like that's a pretty successful argument for like a free market, or at least we'll say like for a marketplace where people can enter it and be treated the same under the law in some respects. So like, you know, if powerful people do something wrong, then they will be as censured, you know, measurably with me if I did something wrong. So like people can expect to enter that arena and have like a chance which I think is sort of like, to me, that's the philosophical argument for that kind of a space. It's not that you will go there and win. It's that, you know, you will go there and like you will win or lose instead of you will just lose. And I, that's a track like, you know, it's I don't want to go too far afield, but there's like a, like a pretty ancient idea of, you know, it's not necessarily related what happens to you and like who you are or what you're doing. It's like the Wheel of Fortune it's the two urns on the floor of Zeus. It's, uh, you know, like all that kind of stuff. It gets into like Boethius and like you're on the wheel. Sometimes you're going to be up here. Sometimes you're going to be down there. But at least like there's a dynamism to that. And there's a sense that like, you know, I can go out there and try and then just accept what happens. And it's a lot harder. And this is still just totally in like world picture type speech. Like, if my world picture is like that, I'll lose no matter what. It's a lot harder to feel like I can resign myself to then that in some ways. Whereas if I can go out and say, well, I did my best and I totally failed, but like I couldn't have done anything other than that, then like somehow that's more okay. And I know that maybe my children will have a chance and we look maybe at different arenas for places for that, like the political sphere, the social sphere, you know, and then this is one that maybe we don't often consider on the show, which is the sphere of like the market or of, of trading and things. And, you know, these aren't necessarily like spiritual or philosophical victories, but I do think that like having enough money to survive is important. And this is one place where that happens. And I think it's important to a society, like we often say that like people feel like things are basically fair enough. They're not ever going to be fair but they're fair enough. It's not rotten to the core. Like, you know, 
I can hope for something. So yeah. I don't know. It made me think about that. Can I say one thing to sort of piggyback on that before before you go? Is like yeah. w- one thing that I saw a lot of on on um, on Wall Street bets is you know, and like they're just memes, right? I mean, you know, so I don't know how much importance to attach to them, but when I see somebody making a post about you know, I believe in my vision of the future, and I believe that that in my vision of the future, there will exist a place where I can buy games, you know, with other people where, where I can go and, and like, I value this place and yes, I value it, but also I have a vision for the future and I, I find it extremely, maybe, maybe, maybe foolish too, right? But brave and, and courageous to say, I have a vision for the future and I can be proven wrong. And I can be humbled by this market, which is the amalgamation and an aggregation of a million, millions of other people who have similar or differing and often conflicting opinions. But that, that there is a certain kind of nobility to saying, I have a vision for the future and I will stake, I will stake this money on that and I will, I will potentially lose it or I will potentially uh, gain glory you know, for it. I find that to be noble. I think... You know, listener, what I really wanted for this podcast was, I mean, Matt, John, and I have been dear friends for a long time. Our friendship was born in us basically getting in several hour arguments with each other. As you can probably tell if you're listening to the show and if you're hearing Matt, that we don't see the world the same. But I thought it was worth bringing all that together so that people can decide for themselves, which is ultimately what I want this podcast to be about, is to explore these things so that you can figure it out for yourself. I think that there is something powerful about the laissez-faire argument, obviously. Um, If there wasn't, we wouldn't be living in the world we're living in. And I really respect Matt's idea about the nobility, perhaps even foolhardy sometimes. There's plenty of that to go around in world history of of this. And what John said about, you know, it felt like things were possible and you're seeing the billionaires cry. So maybe the world's a little bit fair, just at least, you know, so that you don't fall into total resignation and acrimony. And I think that that's important too. What I worry about or what I think about is that, you know, we talked about Citadel's unclear relationship with Robin Hood and things like that. Janet Yellen has taken a ton of money from Citadel, (laughs) is going to be looking at this. I know Matt doesn't agree with that and finds that stuff like odios. Um, So that's not the argument that's being made here is that, you know, he's somehow on the side of those fucking people. I don't know anybody who resents them more than me other than Matt. And, I, and I've been to cocktail parties with, with, with some of these people, and it's just disgusting. Yeah, it's awful. And I've worked for the obscenely wealthy and have felt the same. So I know that that's not where he's coming from. What I want to talk about just briefly to close is that I think a lot of this year, and this is true even of the Sanders campaign, and it was a lesson that I staked money on and time and had to learn painfully. And what we've talked about is that there is a lot of what looks like populism that actually secures elite hegemony in different ways. I think that was true for Trump. Uh, I do think that was fucking true for Bernie. A lot of people don't think that, but that is 100% true. Um, the only way for that not to have been true is if like, he refused to let go of his delegates going into the, into the convention. And he didn't do that. He was a good boy. They're stronger than ever now. And I wonder if that might be the case, depending on how the SEC rolls on this and depending how c- certain things play out. 
and whether that's going to be a running theme of the next few years is that there are these flashpoints of populist resentment that rise up in these expressive ways and it gets tamped down. I can't predict the future. Um, I also wonder about maybe there are limits to the market uh, and its ability to do that. Um, and that's why politics is still important. Um, I would argue that it is. Um, I've had very long, thoughtful disagreements with Matt on that sometimes, but that's okay. So these are three different perspectives on it. We sort of have the laissez-faire argument. I would say John is sort of like a middle trying to put it in a world picture, broad historical way. And then unsurprisingly- I believe that God sets the prices. <laughs> uh, yeah. But and he then, also sets everything else. Yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you and Thomas Aquinas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then of course, like I have the more capital P like political material concerns. So I hope listener that, it's well worth considering and weighing all three of those uh, and perhaps more that you've gleaned for yourselves. We thank you so much for listening. Matt, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to come on here and explain some. It was a real pleasure. And I, and I, I, I hope you guys will fact check me on every, everything incorrect that I've said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't even do that for us. But what I can say, people, is that if you want to fact check us, uh, of course, uh, to quote the supporters of QAnon, do your own research. Um, and that you can also consult our bibliography, which is always linked in the show notes, to check up on where we're pulling some of these. Ideas. I try to be relatively thorough about that. And you can always shoot us DMs, emails, whatever, to ask questions about it. Um, we try to be accountable to you. Um, and with that, stay safe out there and we'll see you again next time. 